0: Hi, I'm Tim Sanova and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. Earlier this year, podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin and I produced Work Shouldn't Suck's Ethical Reopening Summit. The event took place online Tuesday, April 27th and featured eight sessions, 25 amazing speakers, and covered a whole host of topics related to the ethical reopening of workplaces amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We raced to produce the summit from start to finish in just three weeks as we felt the urgency and stress mounting as workplaces were in the midst of reopening decisions. Several months on, we still feel the content is as necessary as ever, so we decided to release each of the sessions in podcast form. In each of the eight sessions, you'll hear the conversations just as the summit attendees did, As a reminder, in late April 2021, COVID vaccine distribution was just gaining speed, and we had yet to begin hearing about the Delta variant. From that vantage point in time, it very much looked like by fall 2021, things might be settling back into somewhat of a quote-unquote normal routine. As I record this preamble in fall 2021, that's not the case. We're now talking about breakthrough infections, booster shots, schools reopening and closing again. Hospital ICUs are packed in states across the U.S., and still, how to safely gather indoors as temperatures again begin to drop with the change in seasons. In this session, newish to organizational anti-racism work, I have the pleasure of chatting with Ansa Adam, Courtney Harge, and Tiffany Wilhelm about the different ways companies can approach the work towards becoming anti-racist organizations. So, let's jump over to the conversation. Hi, and welcome to the session, new-ish to organizational anti-racism work, where, where we'll be diving into and discussing different approaches to doing the work in our organizations. I'm Tim Sinova. I'm a white man with short to medium, messy brown hair. I'm wearing blue rectangular glasses. I have sort of salt and pepper, maybe. I'm stubble. I'm wearing a black sweater, zip-up sweater with a blue dress shirt and blue tie. I'm sitting in front of a wood-paneled wall, and I am really excited about this session, especially coming off the last session. I'm so excited. I'm just excited for today and being able to spend time with, with all of you. A reminder about the Q&A and the chat here. If the chat starts filling up, throw your questions into the Q&A, and then as we're going along, we don't lose them. I'm excited to be joined by three amazing people. Ansa Adam, Vice President of Staff Vice President, Staff Board Chair at Change.org, Courtney Harge, CEO of Of By For All, and Tiffany Wilhelm, Program Officer of Opportunity Fund. And so Courtney, Tiffany, welcome to the summit.
1: Yay, so excited to be here. Thank you for having
0: us. <laughs> I realized we didn't go say what order we'd go in after I, I do that. It's <laughs> Uh, to kick things off, uh, why don't we go around in that order, Ansa, Courtney, and Tiffany? How do you typically introduce yourself and in, in your work? And as you think about organizational anti-racism work, what does that look like and mean to you?
2: All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Ansa Edam, uh, pronouns are she, her. I'm in Washington, D.C., and um, I am a Black woman wearing a headscarf with my hair out, a uh, white T-shirt, and green overall. I'm in my home office with a blue and white background that I painted in a pandemic project. How do I think about organize, organizational anti-racism work? Really, I'm, I'm personally kind of newish to it as well, um, as is change.org. And the way I think about it a lot is, is a lot about learning about what equity really means and spending a lot of time kind of parsing the difference between equality and equity. And it's it's been a lot of education To I I work in a a white-led tech company, as Change.org is generally a white-led tech company. And so it's been a lot of education and a lot of teaching and a lot of learning and a lot of energy put into kind of bringing people up to speed and getting people moving along in their anti-racism journey. I'll pass it to Courtney.
1: Thanks, Ansa. My name is Courtney Harge. I am the CEO for all I use she, her pronouns. I will preemptively offered that I have the best roommate ever who offers an occasional cello concerto, So, which you might be hearing as I speak. I am also a Black woman. I'm wearing a red shirt. I am in a favorite virtual space of mine, which is the library of the former Fractured Atlas office. So there are, you can see three chairs and a couch behind me, not to mention a wall of library books and a gnome. I am, I have a short afro. I have some big round glasses and I'm wearing a headset. And what brings me to, uh, institutional anti-racism work or, or it really was selfishly a matter of self-preservation. It is, work was a place where I knew I could be successful just as a venue. And I am somebody who has had, uh, success in quote unquote, traditional spaces. Like I graduated from college with honors. I actually have strong relationships to institutions and I would get to jobs and not be able to thrive or succeed. And it felt like there has, there's a, there has to be something that is a problem. Something has to be hindering me in a way that isn't just about, can I work harder through it? It's like, what if the environment itself is a, is a problem and what are the ways in which I can engage with correcting that and allowing for people to be as much of themselves as they need to be to be successful at work. And so that is where it grounds for me. And really the more and more, as I see, like what, how do we build environments that people can thrive in? For me, there's no way to do that
3: without an anti-racism lens. And I'll pass it to Tiffany. Hi everyone. It's great to see you. It's great to be with you, Ansa and Courtney and Tim. Tiffany will. Um she or they pronouns. I am currently a program officer at Opportunity Fund, which is in land that's now known as Pittsburgh, which is in Seneca and Lenape and Mingo and Shawnee and Hopewell and many others land. So glad to glad to be with you from there. I am a white woman and really short hair, like like super short, buzzing it during the pandemic. In my bedroom where my, my headboard of my bed is actually a fuzzy shag carpet that I've tacked up on the on a green wall. So you can see both of those behind me. I'm wearing a blue sweater, sort of a V-neck and some big silver earrings. I'm glad to be with you all. And I too have a lot of great poking into that somewhat darker short hair. I, yeah, I get to work in philanthropy and then I also do some work in organizations around anti-racism work. I'm part of the, the community that Courtney's part of too, Art Equity and others like that as well. Gosh, how do I think about organizational <laughs> anti-racism work? One thing I was thinking about it coming into this, especially that framing of being newish to this, although I'm sure there are folks that are n- not newish to this in the space. So welcome you all and want you all to put your thoughts in the chat too, um, is just how much more it probably is than anyone expects when they maybe are newish to it. It is, it is full change, personal change, culture change, policy change, institutional change. And that to me is just a fractal, it's a fractal of what's happening in the whole society, right? So that's kind of what I think of to start. But I'm really excited to, to talk more to y'all about that.
0: One of the questions that our colleague at Fractured Atlas, Nina Berman, prompted us a couple of months ago that created a podcast and a, and, a, and a blog post. Nina's also here. So hello. So I hope I get this right, Nina. No, she said, you know, we talk about the work a lot, you know, doing the work toward becoming an anti racist, anti oppressive organization. She said, but what do we mean when we say the work? For, for each of you, what, what does that mean when, when, talk, when people say the work? Either, well, period, or I guess that's a question mark.
2: Yeah, I can jump in here. You know, at, at Change.org, it meant for us what we called the Reset, like with a capital R, where we had a period of time after the murder of George Floyd where Black staff at Change, we have a Black affinity group called Change Noir, we're actually a community resource group, an employee resource group. And we came together and said, you know, we've been doing a lot of work around this. We are doing, we're exhausted, we're tired. There aren't very many of us, but, but tech organizations in general, and there, because there's so few of us, we were not taking vacations. We were really just exhausted because somebody had to be on call to do the work of being Black at Change.org in this moment. And that was a huge wake-up call to all of us to say that the company needs to do the work of building itself as an anti-racist organization inside and out. So our leadership heard that, and we agreed as an organization to enter what we called the reset, where we examined our values and policies, recruiting practices, everything you can name of for anti-racist principles and anti-oppression principles. And... It continues today. You can check it out at change.org reset. We put together some of the information there to keep ourselves accountable. The work really fell on the shoulders. What surprised me, it fell on the shoulders of our white leadership is that there was work they needed to do internally within themselves. They needed to do a lot of training, Do and then they also needed to do the work of showing other staff how this could be, how they could be held accountable doing the work isn't just talking it's building in practices that say for the long term here's how we're going to follow through here's what this looks like five years from now it's that's what the work i think looks like to not just a change but to me thinking through accountability the work looks like accountability
1: um, for me this is courtney and i agree and i think for me it it's both simple and complicated in the sense of the work is interrupting oppressive systems whenever and wherever I I see them and am resourced to do so and resourced I mean uh, particularly as a black woman I mean like both financially resourced emotionally resourced at the moment and something I often say to to my team and I say to pretty much anyone who will listen is the idea that like oppressive systems. Both have a hundred year have a few hundred year head start and a thousandfold the the resources and 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 energy. And so sacrificing yourself to it is it doesn't actually stop it. like to what you were talking about, Ansa around like people feeling like they weren't taking their vacation days. They weren't resting and or taking care of themselves in service of fixing the problem. But the problem is so big that it will be here beyond your level of exhaustion it will be here after you've burned through. and so for me the work is doing as much as i can and being really clear about what i cannot do so that i can do something else the next day or the next moment so i can interrupt it again because this oppressive systems don't need any more martyrs in service of them. like they've taken so much of our our time, our energy, our resources that Throwing my well-being and any of our well-being—this isn't just about me—throwing uh, any of our well-being at it, to the point w- both won't fix the problem and will just sacrifice. So for me, it's doing the work is taking care of myself uh, to so that I can interrupt more things more often with more efficacy.
3: Yes. Huge support for both of those. And and for those of you who know me, just know that like I feel so strongly that so much of the work has to happen among white folks and like with white folks and that transformation to happen. So just to like support what you both said, because that's where the catch-up needs to happen and where the like if we're gonna collectively shift all of our organizations and society more broadly. The white folks have to be like ready to do that. And so so you know, I had the honor to work a few years ago with Fresh Atlas and to really be part of that journey. And both kind of in the kind of full staff teams that were doing that work and in the White Caucus, which was doing some work that was important. And and way back when Tim you might have this link handy, Courtney and I wrote a post about like what the the caucus spaces were doing and how that had to look really different to support the work of the organization. And and the, the thing I always loved about that is like the idea of the harder the white caucus works, the more everyone else is going to be able to resource themselves and rest and heal. And then collectively we can move the work forward. So, yeah, so I just I really am passionate about supporting those kind of spaces. And we had a, a similar series of conversations, like you were saying, as I happened in Pittsburgh last year among the funding community where some folks that were starting to to gained some awareness last summer, said, you know, hey, well, well, some of our Black colleagues, will you host sessions for us? And folks said no. And so so we formed kind of a white caucus base for just anyone in the funding sector here in this region. You know, now it's going to continue and it's just going to be part, hopefully, of whatever other journeys everyone is on, because there just is so many different things to be part of and to keep growing and learning in. So the work just looks like so many things. And, and I also just wanted to like if you're doing it in an organization, just think about it being emergent, like try different things. Know it's got to be ongoing and long-term, you know, like the, our session descriptions, like book clubs and caucuses and all, like, yes, try it all. See what works in the moment. See what your culture needs for the change at the moment. See if you need some outside help or if you just have the folks in the space who can support that learning, like all of it is important. So.
0: I just shared a couple of links, including the piece that Tiffany shared with Courtney and and a piece that is based off of a a list that Tiffany compiled years ago that one of our colleagues, Nicola, published. And then another one of our colleagues, Nina, updated. It's called Resources for White People to Learn and Talk About Race and Racism. And we just looked at our blog numbers at Fractured Atlas, and it is the most read piece by tens of thousands of reads that that it was we ever published, I think it's nearing a hundred thousand views, and then maybe the next post is like thirty thousand. So it's so those are two two pieces that are there. What what isn't the work? White feelings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that isn't that isn't the work at all. It really is the work is decidedly not about making white people feel better about themselves. I have love for many people and, but I really do not care if you feel better about us going to a, a, the joyful revolutionary space. I actually like, as much as I love wanting to change hearts and minds, I actually want people to just functionally be better. I actually don't care if you like being better. Right. And like, and I know that is, you know, that's not how everybody approaches it, but I, I, I don't need you to believe that I should be treated well. I would like that. I actually just need you to treat me well. Right. And then how you feel about it, you, you can take that home. I don't. That's that's your work to do. And so I think people get confused in talking about the work in quotes because they think the work is I need to believe and feel and trust that you, whoever you are, marginalized in any way, deserve this treatment. and I'm like, no, it's it's actually not up for you to like arbitrate it that I need to, you just need to do it. Throw the resource right. that's at it. just just frankly be better. And then you can figure out if you feel be- if you feel good about it, but yeah, managing white feelings is
2: decidedly not the work. I want to plus one that one hundred percent this is speaking for this listener. is that not just the feeling good about it, but managing white guilt was a huge stressor um, for me personally in the last year or so is there are people who really want to be doing this work and they just feel so bad that we haven't achieved it yet and and, they, and this is horrible isn't it and, and and it's just like a lot it's just a huge downer and I as a, as a black woman I'm already experiencing this having to ask someone to have empathy for you and your lived experience is hard enough um, and then having to manage that person feeling guilty for not having already given it to you—it's just complicated. It overcomplicates things. I 100% um, agree with you, Courtney, in that just just do it. Just let's just let's just get there and just do it. I don't want to uh, kind of hold um, hold people's feelings. And what it, what I found really interesting, what I find really interesting about the conversation about caucuses is just that we did some hours, dozens of hours of trainings at change.org. And there were some questions, there were some questions around caucusing where we split up into uh, caucuses. And the group of us who were in the, the Black Caucus were like, this isn't for us. We don't need to be here. We already know what we're here to do. And we had this like strong feeling. And so at the one, on one hand, we were pretty grateful for our break from really challenging conversations. And on the other hand, when we came back and talked as a group, I found myself being really grateful that there was a space where I didn't have to be the living example of why they needed to be in this training, where those people who needed that could go and talk amongst themselves. And I I appreciated not having to do that work because doing diversity trainings, I'm putting some quotes, diversity trainings is a huge broad spectrum of types of training. And being a Black person in a mixed group, having people ask Hard questions that I, I aren't very easy for me to hear, or um, asking for me to give an example of a time someone was racist against me—it's just very traumatic, and it's it's difficult for me as a black person. And so I think that's where caucuses really make a huge difference—is not putting the pressure on black and brown folks to have to hold for for other people's feelings in those cases.
3: Yeah, and knowing that that, that does can can have places and spaces. Tim, I'm sure to go. Listening too much, and
0: <laughs> yeah, it's the, the classic. Oh crap! I'm supposed to be you right. some questions,
3: but it was sort of about what is not the work, right? And I think that's sort of the tricky space. If I think about actually the work that does happen in white caucuses, is just trying to hold all of that, like letting it be a little bit of a process space, but not letting it get stuck there either. Cause like that can be just ridiculous and hard and and not moving us, giving us tools to move through all of that is a lot of, I think the the work of white caucus spaces. And the other thing I think about that's not the work either, or it's only part of the work. It's not, it's not, not the work, but like, it's so much more embodied than we often realize. Like we can, Way out of any of this, and so any of the work happening in whatever space it is just has to go so far beyond that intellectualizing part of it, because that just we will never get anywhere with if that's where we stop. Really.
0: Speaking of intellectualizing, our, our you know Berman, who we mentioned a couple of times already in, in the session, asks a question: How do you think about how much of your intellect time? energy emotions should go into anti-racist work at your job versus in other aspects of your life ooh i love this question
1: and i have my opinion is frankly as much or as little as you want and or need and i i'm going to rephrase that for poc and or other marginalized people white people as much as you can spare and then a little extra and yes there are ways in which this binary around kind of White people and other is I don't like the language. I think there are ways in which, as much as I enjoy like bipoc as an acronym, as an acronym, huh, it it does still center whiteness. However, the history that we are trying to engage is is was was perpetrated and created and connected to whiteness, and so this is a moment where I'm not defining people as white-centered and not white. It is more like this is a group of people who named themselves this to create harm, and then these are the group of people, the people of the global majority, who were harmed by that by that behavior. And so it, in this case, I'm using white and BIPOC as, again, not as wholly identifiers, but as saying, like, these are people who harmed and named themselves to harm, and these are the people who are recipients of that harm. And so... For bipoc folks, it really is about what are you what what are your choices? What do you want to give? But you are in control of how much you give to an organization. And so if you show up and you clock in and you clock out and you you you're just here so you don't get fined, that is fine. <laughs> you can go live your life however you want to do, because survival and thriving, while surviving, to me, are are the best ways or one of the best ways to interrupt a system that is built to destroy us or make us hate ourselves. And so if you can do what you can do while spreading joy and liking yourself, then do that. For white people, it is your, frankly, your primary responsibility to interrupt and break these systems that were built to serve and protect you. So how much intellect, time, energy, as much as you can give, and then just a little bit more. Because to Tiffany's point, you all are in fact the ones who are behind. (laughs) You are the ones who have to catch up. And way too often, white people turn to their nearest person of color and say, how do you help me catch up? And the answer is, I don't. You have to catch up on your own. You have to find community. You have to uh, I promise you a bunch of people of color have already done the reading, have written a book for you, have engaged in a course for you. You have to go find that. It is not my responsibility to help you catch up. And I still want to be in community. I realize, I promise you, I'm I'm happy to support you catching up, but it is not my job. It is not my responsibility. And you are still responsible for catching up, even without the assistance of your nearest Black friend. I promise. So those are my answers. BIPOC folks give as give as little as you can spare <laughs> white folks give
2: everything and a little bit more And I I can jump into Tiffany I don't want to jump you if you have something to say Okay, I agree with that of course surprise surprise I was introduced to the nap ministry on Instagram last year and I've really stuck by the principle of rest as resistance and I will nap in the middle of the day if I'm stressed about racism <laughs> I will just walk away. And um, to the point I made earlier about last year, black folks that change really struggling with the responsibility, the feeling of the responsibility to make sure that the company was fighting racism, and to Courtney's point, it's not our job, but, you know, there's, you still feel this responsibility because if it's not our job, whose job is it? And, you know, if we don't do anything, then nothing happens. And there's this constant pressure. I started, I decided, to this question, that at work, because it is a part of my job, I am paid to do this work. I, I am a, a staff representative at the executive level. It's the first, that's a, a new role at change. I'm on the, the C team. I'm in the C suite. And I represent staff at that level. And I'm um, the first uh, Black woman at Change.org to be at that level. And it comes with a lot of responsibility and pressure to be the (laughs) at that level. And so I've decided to put my energy and intellect at work, into it at work, because I I feel a responsibility. But in my personal life, I was very quick to just say, oh, nope, not going to deal with that. That's racist. Walking away from that. I'm not going to tell you it's racist. I'm not going to educate you about why it's racist. I'm just going to release myself (laughs) from that. And I had this epiphany that something had to give in my anti-racism work and that it had to be dealing with anti-racism in my personal life. Because at work, I was making an impact that I am making an impact that I really value. I love the work that I do. I love my colleagues of all backgrounds. But in my personal life, the world is huge. And I am one person and I don't owe it to every racist or, you know, sometimes racist or maybe racist to educate them and put my energy and intellect and time and emotions into making sure they see me as someone who's deserving of existing and thriving. So, yeah, in other aspects of my life, I put very little energy, starting very recently, into anti-racist work because it's not my job. And I I release myself (laughs) of of, uh, having to educate other people
3: full support and yeah Courtney just what you said white folks give as much as you can at your job and in other aspects of your life and i just think about too you know there are also also have some discernment about yourself like we all deserve to have liberated cultures and all deserve to have our full humanity so if you're at somewhere potentially like base camp that we heard about in the opening session you might all want to leave like there might not be there also like Carmen Morgan, who some of us know, who's with Art Equity, just says work with the willing and work with the folks that are are wanting to do the change. And there might be some cultures, some organizations tell it is so entrenched that no amount of how much you give is going to change it. So think about that. And then I think, too, about especially now that I'm I'm in a a small foundation, but in philanthropy, like how much power is there? And so how much influence sort of anti-racist principles moving into a space? that holds so much power and so much, <laughs> so much complexity and, and holding that to holding the weight of knowing where real influence is going to make just ripple effects happen. So all of that. And then to your point too, Nina, I like, especially think for white folks, like this has to, you, you can't just I hope you're not in any spaces just feeling like this is professional development work, feeling like this is just happening at your job. This, this takes us all, and especially white folks to transform completely. And so, so do get involved in, I mean, it's everything else in my life that has not been outside of my jobs that has, has informed how I'm showing up. I've got involved in showing up for racial justice really early in my journey, all of that sort of just activism work happening in the community. And that's, that's what, what, makes it possible to show up in all the ways. So I hope, encourage everyone to do that too.
0: (laughs) And so when you said, no, I'm not going to do that, remind me of this thing that Courtney helped create called the negative interactions document protocol that helped our program staff at Fracture Atlas. Um, and, And we published it so everyone can see if you're being racist and oppressive, Someone has the full backing of the organization to just hang up the phone on you or not respond to your email. Courtney, do you want to give a bit of sketch into this? And I included the link in the chat so people can actually download it and use it if, if you want.
1: Oh, certainly, it was for me. It came it came as a response to staff, particularly POC staff, feeling like they could not exit conversations where people were misbehaving, and it wasn't because of directive from in higher ups, it was in essence, just kind of generally understood that the customer is always right. And if a member or a, a Fractured Atlas kind of patron is calling and misbehaving, it is the program associates or it's the staff member's job to kind of sit through it and reconcile and get them to a kind of a better space, which is a generic general understanding around what quote-unquote customer service is supposed to be. And we were having more and more of those, particularly as Fractured Atlas as an org became more vocal about about being an anti-racist org. Like people were calling and just saying just just rude things unnecessarily. And the staff, and I was like, "Why, why are you still talking to this person? Why are you res- being, Why are you taking on the responsibility, actually, to what uh, Ansa was saying? Like, you are holding this responsibility for maintaining this relationship with a person who is, in fact, and, and this working relationship with a person who is, in fact, not doing anything to maintain a good working relationship with you. And you don't have to take that. That should not be the case. And so, in talking to people, the concern really was, well, what happens when we hang up with somebody? like what happens if I just want to exit or is it my responsibility to kind of mediate and pivot them to a better space how much of this if it's abuse how much do I have to take when is the line and so uh, we created the document really it was like these are all the ways you could respond no one response is better because sometimes you're in for the fight right sometimes you're like okay you want to say this I'm going to interrupt. We're going to do this. And sometimes you just can't uh, answer, again, to your point around, like, sometimes you're like, you know what, that you're doing a racism and I just will not. So what are the processes and what are the processes that don't just transfer this negative interaction to somebody who has equal power in the organization? So one of the things that I was just really proud of was you can hang up. You don't have to ask permission. You don't have to go to a higher, you don't have your whatever line. If it was too much for you, it's too much and you hang up, right? And then it was, all and all you had to do to tell everybody was say, uh, was great. We had a hashtag, it was bad call. You could put it on uh, Slack and say bad call and this phone number. And so that way, when it came back, if somebody decided to call back, everybody knew not to hang up or particularly those at the lowest, not to hang up, sorry, not to pick up. Anybody at the lowest level of the organization was like, nope, we're gonna let that ring. <laughs> like, no, you're not gonna get to yell at somebody and then try to go to somebody else and be like, this person was rude to me. It's like, nope, they've already flagged that you misbehaved and this is what's up. And then it was up to somebody with more institutional power to respond and, and address that person. They would call back or they would email them and say, first, this is how you mistreated our staff. So before we resolve whatever you need resolved, I need you to know that that's not how you treat the people who work here. And once you agree to that, then we can talk about your issue. But it really became a a series of steps that allowed people to feel empowered to disconnect and know that they weren't going to be undermined later in the process by being like, I know the staff member was unreasonable, but I really care about you in the way that I've seen other organizations do. where they. kind of say, well, that person just like the staff member misbehaved, but we know you're right. And just to maintain that relationship, it's like, no, if you're going to work with us, you have to respect that we are people that we deserve that type of energy. And and that's where the
2: document came from. really love that. I, um, I love that. I was just smiling the whole time you were speaking, just thinking about all the times where I wish that I had that protocol somewhere I've worked. I've worked in Intel research in college, and the number of people are mean. <laughs> people, I mean, we all know with, with um, anonymity, you know, with phone calls or the internet, or like if I could have just been like, click, I'm just gonna hang up here, Don't have time for you. Nobody pick up the phone. I love that as kind of conditioning for other people as well, which is something that I had to learn in my own anti-racism journey. My family is Nigerian. They came here in the 80s. I was born here in the U.S. And I learned about my own Blackness in this, you know, in this different way as a first-generation American. And James Baldwin, he talks about, or he talked about when, when kids are, this And this is this is his quote, so I'm going to put it in, in air quotes, but when, when kids are playing Cowboys and Indians and that they're rooting for the Cowboy, they love John Wayne, that's like super great. Everyone wants to be John Wayne until you grow up to realize there's a minute when you're, when you're about six years old, you realize that you are the, the Indian in the Cowboys and Indians game. You're not John Wayne, that there's a select few that are John Wayne. And I had that realization sort of around that age and later, and it was only until the last several years of my life that I had, I had this kind of awakening that I could just talk back to people and just say, no, that's, that's not nice. That's not right. That's, that's, that's not how you talk to people or, Hey, that's racist. And it occurred, I, I had this awakening. You can tell people they're being racist. And so I, I really love bringing that into the workplace because it's difficult and it's a huge burden on, on like HR systems. To have to, for Black staff, Black, Brown, Indigenous staff to have to go to HR and make such a report, which I have had to do several times in my life, you know, make a report, this person was racist to me. They do an investigation. The investigation comes out this way. It's very, all very clinical. And I would love to take some lessons from this to my current workplace to just say, hey, like, I think this is something that we can start to implement It's just empower people to shut stuff down. Um, I love it. Ways
1: that like this imbalance works, and I know we're short on time, but I'll be quick. Is that there is an assumption that responding negatively to negative behavior is the first, is in essence, if it, the first shot fired in this conflict, like this person said something terrible to me, and if I respond in kind, I'm the problem. And it's like, no, violence has already occurred. <laughs> like the violence is, has happened. Somebody has said a violent thing, has done, has enacted something that is a t- an attempt to limit and and undermine my own humanity, right? How I respond to them is not is a reaction, is not the inciting incident. And so to what you're saying, like one of the ways in which I like part of my comfort around interrupting that is one recognizing like this violence has occurred and I am responding two I am not responsible for how you feel about me I am responsible for interrupting what is happening and for n- not just letting you harm me right so I'd much rather if you think I'm angry black woman or whatever that means it, like okay that's on you but this person said something real foul to me and I'm going to respond in a way that names this is what just happened and that love is it. not a violent act that is not i'm not even it's not even about like meeting violence with violence but it is like naming violence is mm-hmm. not the same as
3: enacting violence just unmuting so you can hear my snaps <laughs> yes i appreciate <laughs> it i love that and i'm i'm excited to for for funders to the point where they say hey we see anti blackness happening we see people getting harmed we're not going to fund you anymore like it's it really could be kind of that simple too. <laughs> it could, it could be so easy.
0: So we have about five minutes left in our conversation today. If there's other questions that, that you have, please put them in either the chat or the q and I've been taking a look at them. Maybe let's, Take a look at the question. I was scrolling up. I saw Sarah posted, I want to learn about, uh, learn how to encourage our workplace to turn apathy and concern into action. And and maybe a related question that I often hear is like, what if I work for an organization and they're not going to do anything about it? What, what if they're like we heard in the first session, maybe they put a, a black square on Instagram and they're like, all right, well, so what are we going to do? And what what if you work in an organization what and that's not showing... They're actually, they're truly committed to the work. What what should you do? What can- I don't remember
2: if it was Tiffany or Courtney who said this earlier, so forgive me, but I believe we were talking about kind of like the, the power of your own labor, really, at the end of the day. It is it is a privilege to be employed. It is, it's a privilege to to be able to leave a job. And, and I totally understand that. Um, and similarly, but, but similarly to what Tiffany just said about funders being able to say, I, I see that you're, you're not committed to anti-racism, so we're not going to fund you. I am a serious believer in people doing that with their labor, their dollars, with whatever power you have to take away from an organization that isn't committing to helping us build an anti-racist world. And it's to say, oh, well, this isn't the place, this isn't the place for me then. And they'll start to see recruiting suffer and turnaround and, and all of that. And uh, we as workers have an enormous Power, uh, to make demands. And we saw that at change. Like I said earlier, with Black staff stepping up and saying, you're not doing enough. We see that you're doing something. And we see that our mission is connected to anti-oppression. And we're seeing that. We just believe it could be done more, um, better, in bigger ways. And we, we made demands. We straight up made demands. And it worked. And so if more workers can do that it's just band together as as staff who want to see your organization succeed, you you believe in your mission, you believe in the organization, and you really want to be there and you want to help. And eventually these organizations will get the picture that they need to either step it up or lose large flux of of staff.
1: Brilliance is a gift to any place you choose to give it. And they are giving you dollars in exchange, which is not more valuable than your brilliance and talent. And even if they are paying you what you feel you are worth or what you deserve, you are still giving them more than they are giving you. <laughs> I recognize capitalism has taught us that capital and dollars are the most important, and that is not true. Capitalism is a necessary resource to survive. Capital is a necessary resource to survive capitalism, but it is not a determinant on who you are. And so whatever gift you are giving to any or which your talent, your attention, your time, to a place that recognizes that they are still making out better <laughs> than you are in the deal. Frankly, you know, I I always like to say, you know, pull LeBron, take your talents to South Beach, like go where you can be appreciated and where people are willing to work with you. Because if if they are expecting you to come in and do the work for them, one, it'll fall apart. Two, like I said earlier, you will you will fail before the systems fail. And three, the second you do go, it will not be sustained. And so you've in essence out on a treadmill that nobody's going to and it, and not create a better world. It's not just about being seen doing the work. It's about like, can we make impact? And the people and orgs and institutions who are not willing to grow and adapt and change uh, d- deserve to collapse. Do not save them. Do, do somebody? They they have boards, they have CEOs, they have staff who are paid and compensated and supported in keeping the organization going. And if people are not making choicing, choices to do that, where they are losing staff, like let it go, let it fail, let and 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 build something new in its place. Give those resources to people to other people fully. And I, you know, I realize I'm coming. I feel like I'm coming from a, a very kind of nihilistic place. But it, this is out of love. This is as we will be in a joyful, loving, chosen community.
0: And, and with that, the clock has hit 45. God, it's so amazing to be with the three of you today and, and our, our our great participants who have been lively in the chat. Ansa, Courtney, Tiffany, truly, thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom and your insight and your time with us today. Thank you for, for being at the summit. Thank you, thank
3: thank you, you so been much been for having here. us. Yeah, it was so great. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you everyone for attending. For sure. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, truly amazing. Take care. Find more about the Ethical Reopening Summit, including speaker bios and session recaps, at workshouldnsuck.co backslash ethical hyphen reopening hyphen summit 2021. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or a five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.